Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. There was panic in Sheehan's voice. Then Bosch understood. They were going in. Opel hadn't followed more into the theater. They had clicked off on Volenberg's order to split up, but they hadn't followed the order. They couldn't. Moore had seen Sheehan Opel the day before at the burrito stand by Central Division. There was no way one of them could go into the dark theater looking for Moore and risk being seen by the vice cop first. If that had happened, Moore would instantly tumble to the setup. He would know. Sheehan had rogered the order from Rollenberg because the alternative was to tell the lieutenant they had fucked up the day before. Bosch sat there motionless, his finger poised on the front of the VCR. He knew they had been made. Moore was a cop. He had made the tale. The theater shop had been a scam. He hit the play button. This tape had not been erased. The quality on the image was better than Bosch had seen at the video booth at X marks the spot four days earlier. The tape had all the production values of a feature-length promo tape. Framed in a TV picture was the full poster bed in which two men were engaged in sex with a woman. Bosch watched for a moment hit the fast-forward button while the picture was still on the screen. The players in the video began a quick, jerky motion that was almost comic. Bosch watched as they changed couplings over and over, every conceived coupling in fast speed. Finally, he returned to normal speed and studied the players. The woman didn't fit the follower's mode. She wore a black wig and was real thin and young. In fact, she wasn't a woman. Legally, at least. Bosch doubted that she was more than 16 years old. One of her partners was young, too. Perhaps he was her age or less. Bosch couldn't be sure. He was sure, however, that the third participant was Ray Moore. His face was turned away from the camera, but Bosch could tell. And he could see the gold medallion of the Holy Spirit bouncing off his chest. He turned the tape off. I forgot about that tape, didn't I? Still on his knees in front of the TV, Bosch turned. Ray Moore was standing there with a gun pointed at his face. Hey, Ray. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast. I'm Philip Parker, a retired detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find a more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly. Now that's all out of the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 25 through 28 of The Concrete Blonde. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we explore how forgiveness shaped chapters 21 through 24 of The Concrete Blonde. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 25 through 28. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intentions to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with extreme caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. 
By four, Bosch is back in court waiting for the judge to come in and release the jury for the weekend. Judge Keyes instructs them not to read any newspapers or discuss the case and orders them to return to court by 9.30 Monday morning. Upon being dismissed, Harry catches Chandler on the stairs. He asks her for the note, and Chandler tells him if there was a note, it would only be a copy of the one that was sent to the police department. Harry goes back to the conference room and updates Rollenberger on the information Ray Moore gave him and the opinions of Dr. Locke. Rollenberger wants to double the surveillance, but Harry reminds him that Ray is likely to notice a larger police presence. In Rollenberger's absence, Harry warns Sheehan and Opel to be extra careful when following Moore since he noticed them at the burrito stand. After going home for a quick shower, Harry and Sylvia have a romantic dinner followed by a charming fireside intimate encounter. After falling asleep, Harry is awakened by a page from Jerry Edgar. During the return call from Harry, Edgar informs him that he's located the witness that can help them identify the follower. Harry and Edgar interview Georgia Stern, who escaped the follower to no avail. The next day, Harry wakes up alone in Sylvia's bed, and when the phone rings, he tenses, thinking it might be for him. But Sylvia does not appear, so he relaxes again. Harry can hear her talking and think he hears her crying. So he gets up and finds Sylvia on the phone in the kitchen. And when she gets off the phone, she tells him tearfully that one of her students had been killed by a drive-by shooting. While the surveillance team keep eyes on Ray Moore's movement, Harry drives to Ray's house. Utilizing his picks, Harry enters Moore's home looking for evidence. Harry finds a foot-high stack of pornography magazines and several videotapes, but finds they were erased. A second room is like a woman's room with a full poster bed, makeup on a dresser, and sophisticated cameras set up to record. As he continues to search, Bosch finds one videotape that has not been erased and watches it for a few minutes, seeing that Ray is one of the three participants engaged in sex in what appears to be binders. While Bosch is watching the videotape, Moore confronts Bosch from behind. During a tense conversation between Bosch and Moore, in which Moore threatens to kill Bosch, she and Opel burst into Moore's home and disarm him. When Bosch clears the Rover Channel, Wollenberg demands a report. Calmly, Bosch tells him that he should proceed to the subject's home immediately. Bosch explains to Wollenberg that one of them conducted an illegal search of the subject's home and in fact was caught by the subject that had eluded the surveillance teams. Wollenberg wants to call Irving, but Bosch points out that if he does that, it would be likely he'd never be in charge of a team like this again. He asks Bosch what he suggests they do. Ray is handcuffed upstairs while they conduct a search of his home. Later, Ray yells and states that he knows who the follower is and wants to make a deal. In exchange for his release and resignation from the police department, Moore tells Bosch that Dr. Locke is the follower, based upon information Moore gathered. An operational plan is quickly put in motion to place Dr. Locke under observation. Back at the Hollywood station, Bosch discovers a note which appears to be from the follower. The note taunts Bosch and infers that the follower has killed another person. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues for the defining theme for chapters 25 through 28 is everyone likes to taste the sausage but don't like to know how it's made. Hello and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast Harry Bosch. And today we start this episode off with Chandler had rebuffed um, Belk's offer 
to um, take a settlement. And as you remember, last last chapter, Belk had inferred that he was going to go to Chandler and offer her the fifty grand to just walk away, just to walk away from the case. And you know, we I kind of take Chandler's persona here is some semblance of Bosch. Let's look at them. Chandler plays loose and fast with the rules. She's steadfast in her convictions, and she's not afraid to push up on authority. And given a choice, let's remember, the reason we're in court now is because Bosch told Belk, hey, if you don't go, um, if you don't take this to trial, I'm going to hire my own lawyer. And so Bosch understood that Chandler was going to say, basically, fuck you. Because that's what Belk said when she wasn't that nice, but she said, just shove it. So we were going to refer to, she said, fuck you. But either way, she emphatically told Belk that she wasn't going to take the offer. And Harry is starting to, to me, I think Harry is starting to respect Chandler even more so and on a deeper level. Again, just because she's the defense doesn't mean that she's not good. And again, I'll tell any law enforcement personnel who's listening to me is you do yourself and the citizens you protect by assuming just because someone is a defense attorney that they're not good. And, you know, just like any good defense attorney, Chandler says, it confers that the note she got was a copy, but doesn't really admit to having evidence. You know, I like the whole line. Well, if I did have a note, then it would just be a copy. Again, it's a very lawyerly way to answer a question. And if you remember the last podcast, um, I'm starting to like this, or I express this Harry Bosch ecosystem. And I like how Michael Connolly draws on past references, past inferences, and brings them to the current book that we're discussing. And case in point, Rollenberger is telling everyone, hey, I want everyone available just in case Mora becomes hinky. <laughs> if you remember, my brother and I discussed the hinky, quote unquote, back in the, the Black Echo. And uh, Michael Connolly's already told you how cops stop using or don't like the word or no one used the word hinky. Only certain people use the word hinky. Again, that's just another way that I like how Michael Connolly weaves in and connects prior books to the current book. And also gives you or gives us, the reader, another dig or another attribute of Rollenberger and what he's about. And we know we see Bosch reminding Rollenberger not to get over-enthusiastic about surveillance um, when it comes to Moore. Moore is a cop. And, well, let me, let, let me clear something up. So when I work with the homicide guys, those guys really weren't that good at doing surveillance. They weren't. Uh, they're very good at solving murders, but doing some of the, I mean, remember, I'm a, I, I, my, my bread and butter for 20 plus, plus years on the department was in the narcotic field, doing narcotic or special investigation type work. And you have to gather information while the bad guy is conducting proactively, most of the time was a proactive investigation while your target was doing the crime. So you learn quickly how to do surveillance, how not to do surveillance, how not to get burnt, and those attributes that you learn over time and time. Most homicide guys, again, in my experience, don't do active surveillance. They counted on us to do the surveillance. And again, most of the times I was involved with a homicide case was because homicide was related to a narcotic deal went bad. So we kind of worked together. Homicide did that thing. I did my narcotic thing. We married them together and we were able to do a successful investigation. So to bring this back home, the fact of the matter is Bosch is right here. The more cops you have on a surveillance of a police officer, especially a vice investigator, the more likely that he or she is going to know or, or find the surveillance. Because most vice investigators are paranoid anyway. Because, and my, okay, my paranoia wasn't, didn't come from admin or, or cops. My paranoia came from the drug dealers 
and the narcotic uh, uh, targets that I was investigating because I always looked over my shoulders just in case these guys wanted to um, have some type of retribution on me for taking them down. So most narcotic or vice guys here, guys are paranoid anyway. You know, so yeah, Michael Connolly gets it right again when it comes to cops being paranoid, but it's even amped up more because they're following or investigating a vice cop. And to drive this point home, Bosch has to warn Opel and Sheehan to be careful because Moore had picked up on the fact that why are these guys coming, you know, why are these RHD guys coming all the way down here to Central Division for some burrito? That's, you know, you normally don't see RHD guys unless they're in the Pleasure Palace, you know. I'm, I'm throwing that out there. I'm throwing a little jab at the homicide guys, but unless they're at headquarters. And so that, again, harkens back to what I was just said. You got to be careful because most vice guys, most cops are observers anyway. We're trained observers, but the vice guys are even hyper vigilant when you see something that's just not the same as out of the norm. Again, we said it before. We don't like coincidences. I hate coincidences. Okay, so while we're talking, while they're in the conference room, you know, Rolenberg is giving everyone orders, what's going on. And I guess Edgar as hey, is over, overtime approved? And Rollenberg said, yeah, but no humps, on this, um, no humps on this overtime sheet. Now, I'm going to have to agree with Rollenberg here. Yours truly, when I ran an um, operation and it was overtime, everyone, you had to work. And I know it caused a lot of consternation with some of my coworkers. Like, come on, Phil. Dude, it's just overtime. Like, whatever. You know, it's over. The reason we can get the overtime is because we produce. And I want to keep overtime coming, so we all want to have to produce. So if you don't want to produce, let's not go down that road. Now, I was that guy. I admit, I was that guy. And it caused a lot of problems because I would go to people and say, hey, where are your notes? Where are your reports? What happened? You know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then if I find out that they didn't do it, they weren't coming on my next overtime. I, I, I would pull them off my overtime, and I wouldn't put them on it again because... That's bullshit, you know. So, you know, I have to give Rolenberg his just dues here. Um, now, I don't think. Well, no, I can say his motives here was was spot on. No humps on overtime. Let's if we're gonna do overtime, let's show our work and let's keep let's produce. So we see later on Bosch and Sylvia go out to dinner, and. You know, Sylvia expressed to Bosch that's the best time she's had with him in such a long time. We then also see how Bosch is taking seriously, again, the weight of telling Sylvia that he loved her because he says here he has to guard, find ways to guard against not losing her. And I like the fact how Harry is starting to get that weight because it's, it is a weight. You know, he said it in the last couple of chapters. This is the first time he ever thinks he ever told any woman he loved her. Sylvia sees the good in things. Harry is more skeptical and cynical for, to things. And again, here we got Michael Conley saying, you know, here Sylvia's heartbeat is beating counter to his. Again, I'm not that, I'm not that mature when it comes to romance. So I, I, what I did like here was the fact that he said he has to start thinking of ways to guard against ever losing this woman. You know, I want to talk about um, AIDS. And back then in 94, just the hysteria and some of the misinformation. So Edgar calls Harry in the middle of the night and says, hey, I found her. I found uh, uh, Georgia Stern, you know, the, the, the survivor from The Follower. And, you know, he's requested backup because, and, um, and Bosch said, why do you need backup? Just bring her in. And he said, well, she might spit on me or something. And, you know, that is true. Back then, again, me, uh, uh, my younger listeners might not understand this, but my more mature listeners, they understand back there, there was such ignorance when it came to AIDS. Again, even, in the, even more so in the police community. Back in 94, very homophobic police department. Again, I'm not sure about L.A., but my department was extremely homophobic. 
And, you know, then you had on top of you had the AIDS epidemic and all the negative connotation that came along with that. We thought wrongly that you can capture AIDS by someone spitting on you. I, I remember, I remember doing demonstrations that we would put, um, especially you know they had the AIDS demonstrations and, and marches, and people who got locked up. Some of the um, activists who got locked up, we put spit guards on them. I mean, we put these kind of mask, these kind of not paper masks, these uh, cloth masks, kind of like bee. Uh, cloths around their head. So if they spit on, because we were go, we were worried about people spitting on us. I mean, and again, you look back on it, you know, my gosh, what were we doing? 20 something, but you know, it was hindsight is 2020, but this just was the uh, the culture back then. And Edgar, it was extremely guarded against it. Now I can even tell you, some investigations did not, or were not investigated because it was in the gay community. And some investigators were scared of, well, if I got, I got to put my hands on them and if I got to cuff them, then maybe I'll, I'll you know, transmit, I'll get ACE transmitted to me. And I've seen cops say that before, you know. It was, again, it was, it was a sign of the times. And the reason I bring it up because I don't want to gloss over it because that was our past. But I actually look now in 2019 how much more how much forward thinking we are now and that gives you hope you know these books are timeless because then they make you look back on where you were and look how much progress you have made especially in this arena so of course nowadays we don't even think about that because now we're more informed uh, law enforcement and the public and we're better off for it you know as, as, a, as a whole you know as a community we're better off for it I'm always going to point this out. So here we go again, pounding that drum. And what I see is Sylvia is a, a quintessential police officer's significant other. Because I told you before, and this is an example of something that happened. You get a page. You just finished having a romantic evening with your significant other. You're sitting by a fireside and the pager goes off and you got to run. And he asked, Bosch asked her, hey, um, I got to go out. Are you mad? And she says, of course not. You know, that, that line, of course not, I've been the recipient of that. And I can tell you right now, that line, of course not, just alleviates so many uh, problems. Because now you can go focus on your job. You're not saying, damn it, let me rush back home because I know she or he's mad and I don't want them to be mad. And, you know, it was such a great evening. They understand. You know, your significant others understand. And you got to go out because that's part of your job, you know. But you got to be honest. You got to be upfront. And like I told you before, when shit happens and when things are bad, when they say, we'll talk about it later, don't avoid it. Talk about it later. And <laughs> I posted this on Facebook and I had to just do it. The whole fact that Edgar is, um, Edgar is parked in front of a uh, donut shop. Again, <laughs> some stereotypes. And, you know, and my brother said it during the uh, introduction to this podcast as a whole, you know, you know, he, he was going with the stereotypes, you know, he, about donuts. And um, I just thought that was comical. I love, again, things are serious. And I like how Michael Conley just throws in some levity doing these books at, at times you just don't expect them. And again, that, again, it just shows how phenomenal, how great a writer he is. I like how Michael is not afraid to address hard truths and some very uncomfortable areas of law enforcement, well, just of, of society. Again, the word, you know, we see Edgar and Bosch put a plan into place to get Georgia Stern and to then, you know, to grab her and take her to uh, whatever division to interview her. And so the plan was Edgar was going to go up to her as a John, get her to come back into the alley, and then they would grab her and take her away. So Edgar comes back, Bosch goes around the corner, then Edgar comes back alone. So Bosch says, hey, what the hell's going on? What happened? And he pretty much said, well, she made me as a cop. And then... Bosch said, well, hell, if I go there, then she's just going to know as a setup. She should have just locked her up. 
And then um, Edgar says, well, it wasn't a cop. She said that she doesn't do colors. And Edgar is livid. He said, you know, I haven't been called colored since I was a boy. And at first, Bosch like, dude, are you, are you upset that, that a, a street hooker called you colored? And Edgar says back, you just don't understand. You don't understand. Again, from the book, hey, you're right. I don't know what it's like. He took off his coat and threw it in the car. He then unbuttoned the top three buttons of his shirt and walked off towards the street. Be right back. You better hide. If she sees I had a colored guy, she might not come into the alley with me. <laughs> you know? Again, the levity here. Because, okay, let me, let me stop. Let me stop. Let me, let me break this down. Again, Harry is saying as a white guy, he recognizes that as a white guy, he does not understand how Edgar perceives the world he's in. And again, as a black guy myself, I understand what Edgar says. In 2019, you know, I might be judged differently than my white counterparts. It's very unfair, but that's the world we live in. But how Michael Conley gives homage to Edgar's pain here speaks volume of the character of Michael Conley. But, you know, what also speaks to Michael Conley's inside information about cops is the fact that Harry said, hey, you better get down because if she sees I have a colored guy in the car, she might, she might not come with me. Cops are so inappropriate. And that's right there. What Harry did with Edgar was spot on because he just cleared it, made everyone, well, at least those two, diffuse the whole nine yards. And as I think I said in prior podcasts before, cops are just, we're so inappropriate. And we say some of the things behind closed doors. Oh my gosh, OMG. There's some really raunchy things that goes on. And I'll tell you, and she's the worst one. And I'll tell you that Jackie is the worst one. She would make, gro- she would make me blush at times. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe she said that. And, <laughs> you know, again, I told, I'll say, you know, a lot of guys will always, you know, make some sexual innuendo at her, not knowing her. And then I was like, oh boy, oh boy, here we go. And she was just cranked down on this individual and make them feel so small. And then I look at the person, I just go, wow. And, you know, you know Jack and I get in the car afterwards or something like that. And I say, did you really have to hit him that harsh? Like, he won't ever fuck with me again. Well, they're like, nope, he won't. <laughs> Keep on moving. But no, I, I digress. But the whole point I'm, I'm making here, and not to make light of it, is that interaction between Bosch and Edgar is something that happens on a daily basis with a good partner or a good, not even a partner. Um, you know, again, just happening black and white here, but it could be male and female or it could be um, Latina and Asian or whatever, whatever the mix, whatever the mixture is. The fact of the matter is that one person, one demographic is telling the other demographic, you don't understand how it is and fill in the blank. And then the, then the partner comes back over the top. It makes a totally inappropriate statement, but in a harmless gesture to show, yeah, I don't get it, but I got your back. And I'm hoping I'm relaying that well to you guys because I thought that was very good. Again, Michael Conley at his best. You know, so we see um, they get Georgia Stern back into the station. And it appears as though she's on the nod. And the nod is a street term for when, especially heroin addicts, they nod off. They call it the nod. You know, it looks like they're asleep, but they're pretty much they're high on heroin. And my first time ever in- encountering a heroin addict on the nod, I was, in, but I was in the scout car. And one of my areas I patrol was a high heroin area where when I say high heroin is with the heroin was so rampantly, that area of the city was mostly uh, heroin um, addicts and, and distributors of, uh, of heroin. And one time I got a call for a heroin individual OD. So I respond to the scene and I get there on the scene. Again, the person's on a serious nod. I mean, you, you shake and wake them, wake them up and they're not moving. And so I called the EMTs and they show up and they had this, this, this drug called Narcan. And Narcan 
actually blocks, I'm not going to get too much into chemistry of it, but it pretty much blocks the effects of the heroin. And when they, the, they administered the dose of this Narcan, the person that was nodding to the point where they had to call, we called the EMTs because we thought they were going to die, the person immediately sprung up and said, hey, what the fuck you do that for? I was shocked how fast Narcan works. I mean, I'd never saw anything like that before. So uh, that was, again, just a quick uh, example of um, the nod and what it meant. One of the things that, again, the law enforcement world that Michael Connolly captures is doing the um, interview with Georgia Stern. They, they as in Harry, shows, Harry and Edgar show her a six-pack. And six-pack of... Um, of photos of the five of the photos are of cops, and then the first and one of them is who they think the follower is, and they give a picture of Ray Moore. And the uh, George Stern picks out one of the cops and said, "Well, I thought this guy was a cop because I had sex with him." And Michael does a good job here, again pulling back the veil of law enforcement world because. Harry and Edgar both looked at each other and rolled their eyes like, Lord have mercy. Should this, this be uh, reported to IED? <sighs> I, I agree with Harry and Edgar. No way I'm reporting something like that to IED. It just ain't going to happen. Because once word gets out, again, I've said this through all my podcasts, and I'm going to say it again. Um, any investigator worth his salt knows that Street officers, well, street officers are the bread and butter of investigative work. Those guys are out there pounding the pavement every day. They give you information. They know the scene. They know the people, the places, and everyone in their, in their area patrol. And if a word gets out that you're reporting stuff, some bullshit stuff like that to IED, again, you can infer anything you want to. You know, she didn't say, oh, he, this guy beat me up or he forced me to have sex. They said he has, you know, she said, well, I thought the guy was a cop and she had sex with the guy. Again, that could be interpreted in so many ways. And again, that's not right now your focus. Your focus is to find out this follower and find out who the hell this guy's out there killing people. Not going out, finding out some damn cop is having sex with a prostitute. Again, my theme from this point on in the books is sausage. Again, I'm going to keep saying over and over again. Society loves the taste of sausage, but a lot of people don't want to know how it's made. So, no, I agree with Harry and Edgar's decision not to run the ID on this because, again, if word gets out like that, you would never get any police officer, street officer, anyone to help you out to do your job. So, the next day, Harry's back at home and while he's sleeping, he hears Sylvia crying. Well, he, w- he wakes up, and he hears Sylvia on the phone, and then hears what appears uh, she's crying. And long story short, Sylvia's crying because one of her best students got killed in a random ride-by shooting. And line from the book is, this city, when it comes to random violence that happens, you know, that kind of random violence happens so much in big cities. It's very sad because the uh, TV and news reports are fraught with innocent bystander hit by stray bullet, you know, a little kid on the street just playing stray bullet. And I think that happens in every major city. And that's a heartbreaker. And I like how Bosch is not above playing practical jokes. And he's always been practical joke, uh, uh, Bosch. I think I've told you guys before. And my orbit, we have one prankster, and this dude always pulling a prank on anybody. Uh, I, you know, throughout the podcast, I'm like just throughout this series, when things like this come up, I'm just give you a quick example. Like one example is, I one time I went into work, we were playing practical jokes on each other because I would go around and pop off the keys on his keyboard, his keyboard, and move the numbers around because he was a pecker. You know, a pecker is a guy who ta- who types with his fingers and looks at the keys, and he doesn't. He ha- he did not learn traditionally how to type, 
And like like I did, you know, you put your hands on the keyboard and it's in your, you know, it's a traditional way you learn how to type in in the formal fashion. But he was a pecker, so I was going around and I changed the keys on, on his uh on his keypad on the keyboard. Well, this guy, I would come in and he would break into our office. You know, he was in a different unit. He would break into our office and he would hand like one time he um broke into my credenza. And when you open up the credenza, he had a cup full with, with um, shredded paper, and it just dumped all over my desk. I could give I'm gonna give stories throughout the uh, podcast, throughout the series, but that's one example of again Michael Conley shows Bosch is playing practical jokes because Bosch played a practical joke on Rollenberg. We see Bosch following up on the surveillance and concerning Mora. And again, Rollenberg comes over the air and say, hey, you know, use, use proper codes when you talk and you know, keep the air silent. And remember, you know, you know, Bosch, you know, everyone clicks the radio. And I remember I told you that when I got chewed out by um, one of my old assistant chiefs. And again, here you see it here. Again, I, I love, again, the, the, how true to form cop work is when Michael Connolly's writing it, because that happened all the time. Again, before, again, this is before the new technology, the new radios. Now you can't really can't do that because new radios, when you click it, it's a D inside. When you click the radio dispatch knows who actually is key. We'll call key in the mic. And so then we have Bosch going to Moore's house and we can see Bosch making this sausage. You know, he is going to break into Moore's house. You know, he's grab his picks and he's going to go into Moore's house. And only thing I'm going to, you know, talk about if it's right or wrong, I'm just going to ask you, the listeners, is how do you like the sausage? Because it's law enforcement just like pretty much mirrors society. There's no, there's a bunch of gray areas. When, so Bosch breaks into Moore's home looking for other evidence. Well, if we, well back up. Even before Bosch breaks into um, Moore's home, what does he do? Bosch turns his police jacket inside out. And again, the Harry Bosch world, who else did that? Who else did that when they were doing something illegal? Who else did that? Special Agent Rourke back in the Black Echo. Again, Michael Conley ties these, this, this, he's putting this bridge together. This, he's making this Harry Bosch universe. And that was to me picking up on uh, what uh, Special Agent Rourke did in the Black Echo turning his jacket inside out. You know, something funny happens um, here with Bosch, and it happened to me. So when Bosch is going through Moore's home, he turns a corner, turns something, and he draws down on a wig. And, you know, he starts talking to this wig until he identifies, you know, it was a mannequin with a wig or something on it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, yours truly has done that before. And almost for a year after I did it. So we're, we're executing a search warrant. And when we executed the search warrant, I was um, n- number one in the stack. And number one means you're the first one going through the door. And my, you know, it, when I was, since I'm number one going through the door, I went in and went immediately to the right, covered to the right. And there was this silhouette of this person. And I'm yelling commands. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. Hands up, hands up, police, hands up. You know, I start going off and this person just stood there. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. Hands up. You know, I'm just yelling commands. This person just stood there. And all of a sudden, I rush it <laughs> and I hit it. Because at the time I had a, um, when I went through the door at that time, back then, I had a shotgun. And I like a shotgun going through the door. And that's a, that's a different story. But I had a shotgun. So I took the shotgun and I turned it so it was parallel and I used the the butt to slam against what I thought was a person to knock him down. And it wasn't a person, it was a mannequin. (laughs) Oh boy. I, for a year, couldn't live that down. Everybody, they were just laughing at me you know, again, cops are so bad because from that point on, I got pictures on my desk. I got 
erroneous phone calls from people saying, hey, this is uh, mannequin number one. <laughs> I want to file a complaint. Somebody beat up my husband or something like that, you know. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, so it happens. It happens. And again, this is why I like Michael Connolly because this, this, you know, just crazy stuff that happens when you are on the street. You would, people wouldn't believe you. It wouldn't believe you. And then you have this writer, this author, who wasn't a police officer writing about stuff like this. And then, so society said, that, boy, that didn't really happen. And I'm here to tell you, people, stuff like that, drawing down on a mannequin or, or a wig does happen in the law enforcement world. And, you know, one of the things that during this time Harry's in the house, how long it takes. Now, I, I have been involved in what we call sneak and peek warrants. And again, it's just what that it is what it sounds like. We got a warrant to go surreptitiously into a house or a car or something to that effect to install and or to search without making notice to the uh, proprietor of the property. And again, I'm not going to, I digress. I'm not going to get into all what you have to do. It's a lot you have to do to get a sneak and peek warrant. But just uh, suffice to say, I've been involved in a couple. And one in particular, I was remember we were doing a warrant, a sneak and peek on a um, on a car, and we had to use a lot of different ruses to get the car um, into a place, or we were following the target to install something, but whatever. And the surveillance team lost the target. You know, again, uh, we followed the guy to the mall, I think it was, and once we we were going to uh, install a, a tracker device, and what. <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 the surveillance that's supposed to follow the guy, they lost him. And lo and behold, you know, I'm going to, you, before, before I even forget, finish the story, you know what happened. So he parks in the mall. Yeah, I think it was, it was a mall. And, you know, we have coverage on the vehicle. We got the coverage of the team installing the tracking device. And then lo and behold, we see coming around the corner, the, the target. We're like, what the hell? What the hell? Go to, um, do we go over the air and say, uh, we, we eyes on the target now. Really? And you hear the panic in their voice. Like, what, what the hell? So well, luckily, luckily for us, the install team were just finishing up. And they were able to um, get out of there in time. But again, shit happens. And Michael Conley is capturing that. When you're doing stuff like that, sneaking peeks or being surreptitious, shit happens all the time. And you plan, you start to plan for the shit happening. And when you're following somebody, surveillance teams lose people all the time. And so, again, that is another example of Michael Conley getting it right. And then, ladies and gentlemen, that sinking, feel, that sinking feeling when... Bosch is looking at the videotape and it's obvious that Mora is engaged and he's not the follower, but he's engaged in un, um, having sex with minors. And so he's looking at the tape and behind him, he hears, I guess I forgot that one. Boy, when I read that, even in preparation for this podcast, that still just grabbed me because, boy, I, I had a sinking feeling like, okay, I don't know about you guys, but you know what I did? By the time I, I cheated, I, I, I cheated because I'm like, okay, does he make it through the end of this book? <laughs> because I'm thinking, how the hell is Harry Bosch going to get out of this one? How the hell is Harry Bosch going to get out of this one? But he gets out of it by being true with Harry Bosch. He gets out of it by staying calm, you know, uh, keying the mic, let the, um, his others hear what's going on on the uh, other end by keeping an open mic. And so they know that the gig is up. You know, they lost Mora. He's in the house. They hear him talking to Mora. They respond to, they as an Opal Sheen respond to, um, to Mora's house. But again, one of the things we're trained as law enforcement is to maintain your cool. You got to maintain your cool. Again, it's easier said than done. And more often than not, you don't. But Again, Harry's been in Vietnam. He's been a cop for, you know, by this time, by 15 years or so. He's a trained, calm, cool guy. And maintaining his cool got him through this particular situation. But, you know, even before 
I I, I sped up fa- I sped up too quickly. Back let's back up a little bit because you know before remember I just said a couple of minutes ago that certain things we you know as investigators I'm not going ID by a prostitute saying that another officer she has sex with, but here here more even calls Bosch out and again from the book, but you'll know. And you'll tell him, won't you, Harry? You'll tell IED. You'll tell the world, I'll never be in the clear. So don't fucking say I'll be clear. Everyone will know. And again, this is the, again, so there's that gray area. There's that sausage. Because more is right. Now this, I would run to IED and say, yeah, this dude is having sex with underage kids. And again, any cop is going to say, this fucker needs to go down. And more needs to go the fuck down on this one. But I hope you guys get the difference between reporting what Georgia Stern said and reporting what Bosch is seeing here. But Michael Conley, again, boy, his writing is just so profound. Again, from the book, let me give you a tip, Harry. Nobody in this world is who they say they are. Nobody. Not when they're in their own room with the door shut and locked. And nobody knows anybody, no matter what they think. The best they can hope for is to know yourself. And sometimes when you do, when you see your true self, you have to turn away. Boy, you know, to thyself be true. But my kids hated that line. I used to say that all the time. To thyself be true. brings us to the question of the day. And the question of the day for chapters 25 through 28 of the Concrete Blonde reads as, all the while, the host remained in the upstairs gym room, cuffed to one of the chrome bars of the weight machine. He was accorded fewer rights than a murderer would have received had he been arrested in his home. No phone calls, no lawyers, no rights. This was always the case when cops investigated cops. Every cop knew the most flagrant abuse of police powers occurred when cops turned on their own. Do you understand this behavior? And 81% of you say you do understand this behavior. So let me illuminate a little bit, again, at least in my world, what I think. You know, when a police officer goes bad, it tears at what we do and you are making it more difficult for us to do our job so the sympathy and empathy and all that stuff that sometimes you would afford a murderer you just don't you, you just don't give it to when another cop investigates their own and I think even Harry or Michael Connolly alluded to this he said it just comes, it's like getting your badge. It comes with the job. And it's kind of like a broken mirror. Like you're watching this mirror or a cautionary tale or something that happened when we were in the academy. They always gave us these cautionary tales. Watch the, what, what to look out for. Um, be on the lookout for this. Don't do this. Don't do this. These are the things that could derail your career. You know, so you are investigating something that you don't want to look at. You know, you're looking at this nasty, this bad, and it's already it's already bad enough. And then you you see this cautionary tale, and again, it's all these emotions that go into it. So yes, I do understand it. I get this particular line, and I'm really pleased that at least 81% of you understand this behavior also. You know, I also want to give a shout out to Michael Conley because as of this podcast, he's been coming out with little nuggets of some old books and some things that didn't make, that he left on the, for lack of a better word, left on the uh, cutting cutting floor. And, you know, it gives some good insight on some of the, some more backstory with Harry and where he comes from. Like, and it's, it's really some really good stuff. So 
I encourage anyone to avail yourself to my, he's been putting it out on Twitter and Facebook. And so read those passages that didn't make the final cut in the book, but they are very, very illuminating. And lastly, you know, I've been watching this Netflix series called Mindhunter, and it looks like it's based on how the uh, FBI came with their behavior science division. I like it because it ties into the Harry Bosch ecosystem. And again, no spoilers here, but some future books deal with the FBI and the behavioral science and the information and the science behind murderers and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to get even more backstory, I encourage you to go and watch Mindhunter on Netflix. And that's it. And as always, I feel like I'm rambling. So let's get back to hitting the streets. So like I said before, when every, everything is calm and collected, you know, we're doing surveillance and everyone's using codes and everything like that. But, you know, we see as soon as she hit the fans, that code went out the window. You see Rolenberg just start fluttering. What's going on? In, Harry, uh, she and uh, co, uh, team leader, what, what's going on? And you see him getting flustered. And that, again, that happens all the time. When things are nice and proper and everything's going smoothly, we're getting, we get into this police lingo and everyone's using these codes. But when shit hits the fan, all that goes out the window. Tell me what's going on. Let's get this information. Let's rock and roll. And we see Bosch taking control of the scene. You know, he goes over the air, clears everyone, all the teams, because by this time, Rollenberger as everyone to assemble, respond in, and all this kind of stuff. Bosch countermands that orders, tell everyone but Edgar um, to respond to the subject's home, which is, of course, Ray Moore's home. And you see Bosch, I honestly believe, just like I said in the last podcast, he was free. He freed himself by forgiving Edgar. Because when shit the fan, um, Opel and Sheehan came rushing through the door. They saved Harry's ass. And he also asked everyone else, he dismissed everyone else, but asked Edgar to respond to Moore's home. And he's able to do that because, like I was saying last podcast, he forgave Edgar and he found out he was the prisoner and it freed him too. And, you know, it's, I, I get, it's so complex and it's so nuanced, but this is, again, I think Harry felt a loss because he trusted um, Edgar. He knew who Edgar was. You know, again, Edgar might be all about money, but Edgar was still somebody who always told him, watch your back, told him what was going on when Irving. And, and remember, even in the um, Black Echo, he's the one who snuck into the room who told Harry, hey, you know, they don't know what's going on. Keep your mouth shut or gave him some warning. So, who does he call? He told Edgar to respond to the scene with more because things just got fucked up really fast and really badly. Again, from the book, Gullenberg looked around at others standing in the living room. She and Opel Edgar, they gave him a deadpan look. Bosch said, if you knew nothing about it, Lieutenant, you have to prove it. Everything said on Simplex 5 tonight is on the real to real downtown at City Comm Center. I said I was in the house. You were listening. You even spoke to me a few times. So let's back up. So <laughs> let's back up. So Rollenberg gets there to the house. Edgar, Sheehan, Opel are all there. And what does Rollenberg do? He starts to try to assess blame. This is your fault. You, put, you got your hands stuck in the cookie jar, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And Bosch puts it back on him. Prove that. Prove that you didn't know what was going on. All of us are going to say you did know what was going on. <laughs> or pretty much you say you have a hard time to prove that. <laughs> and, you know, the, the lieutenant loses it. The lieutenant loses it. And he starts rushing Bosch. And I've witnessed that happen before. I have witnessed someone who, an official who was a climber witnessed their career being in jeopardy and absolutely lose it. Now, 
the one incident I'm think incident I'm thinking of, the the official just started almost in the same scenario as Harry. We had fucked up. The scene was fucked up. Everything was fucked up, and this supervisor just started throwing chairs around and kind of fr- literally almost frothing at the mouth until someone said, "Dude, you need to calm the fuck down." <laughs> so. The climbers, you know, they start thinking, my career, my career, my career, opposed to less, this investigation just got thwarted or wasn't what we thought it was. And, you know, we see that. We see that because what does, what does the lieutenant says? Boss, you fool, you ruined the bus. You ruined the bus. You know, we see what Rolenberg motive was. It wasn't to get a killer off the street. He's worried about getting the glory for, uh, for the quote-unquote bust. And that, again, tells you the type of uh, a police officer Rollenberg is. Again, I like, again, from the book, no one except Rollenberg was upset by Bosch's illegal entry into the house. Bosch's own home had been similarly violated at least twice that he knew about during the times when he had been the focus of internal investigations. Just like the badge, it came with the job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of understood, you know, it's kinda, you don't have any rights, especially on the work premises, you know, I've seen them go through lockers and search people's lockers and all that kind of stuff. It's, again, it's, it's part of the job. But, you know, we started out with more introduction, um, at least Michael Connolly, he, he gave you the seeds of more could be bad. And again, I, I talked about how brave that is. And more is a cautionary tale to every vice investigator. And that's why most departments have a limitation on vice investigators being, you know, staying in vice for a certain period of time because it is a corrupting of, you know, you're around this stuff all the time. And if you don't have a good center, better men than me have succumbed to some of the dark side of vice work. Now, I'm not keeping count, <laughs> but, and here we go again. Now, I get, I didn't do this purposely. It just, it seemed to come up when I was in preparation to the, for these podcasts. We have Bosch telling Moore, uh, we, we deal or you accept our deal or we go to ID. <laughs> and again, this is the third time he's done that. And so the deal is, Moore, you resign um, the department, you don't file a lawsuit on us for illegally searching your home, and we'll let you go, but you got to tell us who the follow is. And then they agree on it. So then Moore tells Bosch um, and Rollenberg that the follow is Dr. Locke. And he is the peeping Tom who's been visiting all the porn sites. He's the one who some other um, porn star had called in as being suspicious because he was a peeper. And Dr. Locke does fit the profile of the follower concerning he was in the porn business. He was around and or was a police liaison. And he kind of, you know, the age and the whole nine yards. You know, Michael Connolly did something interesting with Locke from the uh, beginning, well, not the beginning, but remember when Bosch went to visit Locke the first time and Bosch noticed the pinkish carpet was a little dirty and warm, but otherwise the place wasn't bad for a, a college sex professor and author. He noticed that the water of the pool was choppy, as if someone had been swimming in there recently, like someone was there and Locke didn't want Bosch to know who it was. And again, you know, that was all the way back in chapter 14. And I, back then, I start feeling that, remember I was telling you, that, that, that python snake, you know, wrapped around me. And because I don't trust Michael Conley. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, it's the setup. It's the setup. So after they got the information from Moore that Locke is the possible follower, I kind of got a little respect for Rollenberg here. I think there's some hope for Rollenberg uh, from the book. Okay, from the book. Rollenberg dispatched Sheehan Opel to Locke's home to put him under immediate surveillance. This time, don't fuck it up. He said, as he recovered some of his command presence. Next, he announced there would be a meeting of the task force at noon on Sunday. 
a little more than six hours away. He said that he would then discuss seeking a search warrant for Locke's home and offices and decide what moves to make. As he headed for the door, Willenberg looked at Bosch and said, go cut him loose. Then Bosch, you better get some sleep. You're going to need it. What about you? How are you going to handle Irving on this? Rolenberg was looking down at the gold detective's shield he held in his hand. It was Morris. He closed his hand over it and put it in his sport coat pocket. Then he looked at Bosch. That's my business, isn't it, Bosch? Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, so I think there is a little bit of hope for Rolenberg, Rolenberg here uh, after all. So then Bosch goes back to Hollywood Division and he checks all his messages, you know, his, his cupboard for his messages. And he gets a sinking feeling because he sees what appears to be a note. And rightfully, he assumed it was a note from the follower. And in the note, pretty much the follower says a couple of things that shook Bosch. So much so that he ran through the watch commander's office, almost knocking down the duty sergeant, uh, yelling uh, for someone to, to get a hold of Jerry Edgar. Tell him to come up on the rover. That gets us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. And this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts person for The Concrete Blonde, chapters 25 through 28, is Harry Bosch. And I say Harry because he kept cool under some very harsh situations. I said it earlier. And the fact that he was able to maintain his composure and think about to keep his radio keyed to let his fellow um, detectives know he's in trouble. And that helped them then to come to the rescue was a stroke of genius. Like I said, like I was saying earlier, when I was reading this book for the first time, I'm thinking, oh my God, how's Harry going to get out of it? How's he going to get out of it? And I thought it was a very ingenious way Michael Connolly got Harry out of trouble. So again, my everyone counts or no one counts person for chapters 25 through 28 of The Concrete Blonde is Hieronymus Bosch. This concludes chapters 25 through 28 review of The Concrete Blonde. Thanks for your continued support of me and this podcast. I am having so much fun. It's so great that we have created this thing and it's growing and it's a steady growth and I love it. And as always, you know, you can go to Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to get us. And while you're there, again, if you can continue to give us five stars or better in the ratings, it would be much appreciated. And also, comments, comments, comments. I'm going to keep saying it. I love the comments. They fuel me, and I love the interaction between everyone. The participation in the question of the day and the comments is phenomenal. It's great, so keep it coming. And as you you know, good comments or bad comments, I, I like I like the feedback. So anything you say is valuable and I respect and I appreciate any contribution to help this podcast get better. And also thank you for your continued support by promoters to your friends and family. Again, I know the podcast is growing 
because of you guys and the word of mouth to your friends and family. So please continue to tell them to check us out and hopefully they will uh, like it and subscribe and then keep moving it forward. And as always, you can go to www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content. And as you are aware, there you will find more detailed content concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Conley. So next up on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we will continue our deep dive of the Concrete Blonde, chapters 26 through 29. I am Philip Parker, and I'm 10-7 for the remainder of 